Chapter Ten of The Flying Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. The Flying Inn by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Ten. The Character of Poodle. There lay about in Lord Ivywood's numerous gardens, terraces, outhouses, stable-yards, and similar places, a dog that came to be called by the name of Quoodle. Lord Ivywood did not call him Quoodle. Lord Ivywood was almost physically incapable of articulating such sounds. Lord Ivywood did not care for dogs. He cared for the cause of dogs, of course, and he cared still more for his own intellectual self-respect and consistency. He would never have permitted a dog in his house to be physically ill-treated, nor, for that matter, a rat, nor, for that matter, even a man. But if Quoodle was not physically ill-treated, he was at least socially neglected and Quoodle did not like it. For dogs care for companionship more than for kindness itself. Lord Ivywood would probably have sold the dog, but he consulted experts, as he did on everything he didn't understand, and many things that he did, and the impression he gathered from them was that the dog, technically considered, would fetch very little mostly it seemed because of the mixture of qualities that it possessed it was a sort of mongrel bull terrier but with rather too much of the bulldog and this fact seemed to weaken its price as much as it strengthened its jaw his lordship also gained a hazy impression that the dog might have been valuable as a watchdog if it had not been able to follow game like a pointer and that even in the latter walk of life it would always be discredited by an unfortunate talent for swimming as well as a retriever but lord ivywood's impressions may very well have been slightly confused as he was probably thinking about the black stone of mecca or some such subject at the moment the victim of this entanglement of virtues therefore still lay about in the sunlight of ivywood exhibiting no general result of that entanglement except the most appalling ugliness now lady joan brett did appreciate dogs it was the whole of her type and a great deal of her tragedy that all that was natural in her was still alive under all that was artificial and she could smell hawthorn or the sea as far off as a dog can smell his dinner like most aristocrats she could carry cynicism almost to the suburbs of the city of satan she was quite as irreligious as lord ivywood or rather more she could be quite equally frigid or supercilious when she felt inclined and in the great social talent of being tired she could beat him any day of the week but the difference remained in spite of her sophistries and ambitions 
that her elemental communications were not cut, and his were. For her the sunrise was still the rising of the sun, and not the turning on of a light by a convenient cosmic servant. For her the spring was really the season in the country, and not merely the season in town. For her, cocks and hens were natural appendages to an English house, and not, as Lord Ivywood had proved to her from an encyclopedia, animals of Indian origin recently imported by Alexander the Great. And so, for her, a dog was a dog, and not one of the higher animals, nor one of the lower animals, nor something that had the sacredness of life, nor something that ought to be muzzled, nor something that ought not to be vivisected. She knew that in every practical sense proper provision would be made for the dog, as indeed provision was made for the yellow dogs in Constantinople by Abdul Hamid, whose life Lord Ivywood was writing for the Progressive Potentate series. Nor was she in the least sentimental about the dog, or anxious to turn him into a pet. It simply came natural to her in passing to rub all his hair the wrong way and call him something which she instantly forgot. The man who was mowing the garden lawn looked up for a moment, for he had never seen the dog behave in exactly that way before. Quoodle arose, shook himself, and trotted on in front of the lady, leading her up an iron-side staircase, of which, as it happened, she had never made use before. It was then, most probably, that she first took any special notice of him, and her pleasure, like that which she took in the sublime profit from Turkey, was of a humorous character. For the complex quadruped had retained the bow-legs of the bulldog, and seen from behind reminded her ridiculously of a swaggering little major waddling down to his coob. The dog and the iron stairway between them led her into a series of long rooms, one opening into the other. They formed part of what she had known in earlier days as the disused wing of the Ivywood house, which had been neglected or shut up, probably because it bore some defacements from the fancies of the mad ancestor, the memory of whom the present Lord Ivywood did not think helpful to his own political career. But it seemed to Joan that there were indications of a recent attempt to rehabilitate the place. There was a pail of whitewash in one of the empty rooms, a stepladder in another, here and there a curtain-rod, and at last in the fourth room a curtain. It hung all alone on the old woodwork, but it was a very gorgeous curtain being a kind of orange-gold relieved with wavy bars of crimson, which somehow seemed to suggest the very spirit and presence of serpents, though they had neither eyes nor mouths among them. In the next of the endless series of rooms she came upon a kind of ottoman, striped with green and silver, standing alone on the bare floor. 
She sat down on it from a mixed motive of fatigue and of impudence, for she dimly remembered a story which she had always thought one of the funniest in the world, about a lady only partly initiated in theosophy, who had been in the habit of resting on a similar object, only to discover afterward that it was a Mahatma, covered with his eastern garment and prostrate and rigid in ecstasy. She had no hopes of sitting on a Mahatma herself, but the very thought of it made her laugh, because it would make Lord Ivywood look such a fool. She was not sure whether she liked or disliked Lord Ivywood, but she felt quite certain that it would gratify her to make him look a fool. The moment she had sat down on the ottoman, the dog, who had been trotting beside her, sat down also, and on the edge of her skirt. After a minute or two she rose, and the dog rose, and she looked yet further down that long perspective of large rooms, in which men like Philip Ivywood forget that they are only men. The next was more ornate, and the next yet more so. It was plain that the scheme of decoration that was in progress had been started at the other end. She could now see that the long lane ended in rooms that from afar off looked like the end of a kaleidoscope, rooms like nests made only from hummingbirds or palaces built of fixed fireworks. Out of this furnace of fragmentary colors, she saw Ivywood advancing toward her, with his black suit and his white face accented by the contrast. His lips were moving, for he was talking to himself, as many orators do. He did not seem to see her, and she had to strangle a subconscious and utterly senseless cry, He is blind! The next moment he was welcoming her intrusion with the well-bred surprise and rather worldly simplicity suitable to such a case. And Joan fancied she understood why his face had seemed a little bleaker and blinder than usual. It was by contrast. He was carrying clutch to his forefinger, as his ancestors might have carried a falcon clutch to the wrist, a small, bright-colored, semi-tropical bird, the expression of whose head, neck, and eye was the very opposite of his own. Joan thought she had never seen a living creature with a head so lively and insulting. His provocative eye and pointed crest seemed to be offering to fight fifty gamecocks. It was no wonder, she told herself, that by the side of this gaudy gutter-snipe with feathers, Ivywood's faint-colored hair and frigid face looked like the hair and face of a corpse walking. You'll never know what this is, said Ivywood in his most charming manner. You've heard of him a hundred times and never had a notion of what he was. This is the bulbul. I never knew, replied Joan. I'm afraid I never cared. I always thought it was something like a nightingale. Ah, yes, answered Ivywood, but this is the real bulbul, peculiar to the east, Pycnonotus hammerhus. You are thinking of Dahlia's golzi. 
I suppose I am, replied Lady Joan with a faint smile. It is an obsession. When shall I not be thinking of Dolius Galsworthy? Was it Galsworthy? Then, feeling quite touched by the soft austerity of her companion's face, she caressed the gaudy and pugnacious bird with one finger and said, It's a dear little thing. The quadruped, intimately called Poodle, did not approve of all this at all. Like most dogs, he liked to be with human beings when they were silent, and he extended a magnificent toleration to them as long as they were talking to each other. But conversational attention paid to any other animal, at all remote from a mongrel bull terrier, wounded Mr. Poodle in his most sensitive and gentlemanly feelings. He emitted a faint growl. Joan, with all the instincts that were in her, bent down and pulled his hair about once more, and felt the instant necessity of diverting the general admiration from Pinknotus Hammerhus. She turned it to the decoration at the end of the refurnished wing, for they had already come to the last of the long suite of rooms, which ended in some unfinished but exquisite paneling in white and colored woods, inlaid in the oriental manner. At one corner, the whole corridor ended by curving into a round turret chamber, overlooking the landscape, and which Joan, who had known the house in childhood, was sure was an innovation. On the other hand, a black gap, still left in the lower left-hand corner of the oriental woodwork, suddenly reminded her of something she had forgotten. Surely, she said, after much mere aesthetic ecstasy, there used to be a staircase there leading to the old kitchen garden or the old chapel or something. Ivywood nodded gravely. Yes, he said. It did lead to the ruins of a medieval chapel, as you say. And the truth is, it led to several things that I cannot altogether consider a credit to the family in these days. All that scandal and joking about the unsuccessful tunnel. Your mother may have told you of it. Well, it did us no good in the county, I'm afraid. So as it's a mere scrap of land bordering on the sea, I have fenced it off and let it grow wild. But I am boarding up the end of the room here for quite another reason. I want you to come and see it. He led her into the round corner turret in which the new architecture ended, and Joan, with her thirst for the beautiful, could not stifle a certain thrill of beatitude at the prospect. Five open windows of a light and exquisite Saracenic outline looked out over the bronze and copper and purple of the autumn parks and forests to the peacock colors of the sea. There was neither house nor living thing in sight, and familiar as she had been with that coast, she knew she was looking out from a new angle of vision on a new landscape of Ivywood. You can write sonnets, said Ivywood, with something more like emotion in his voice than she had ever heard in it. What comes first into your mind with these open windows? 
"'I know what you mean,' said Joan, after a silence. "'The same half oft. "'Yes,' he said, "'that is how I felt, "'of perilous seas and fairylands forborne.' There was another silence, and the dog sniffed round and round the circular turret chamber. "'I want it to be like that,' said Ivywood, in a low and singularly moved intonation. "'I want this to be the end of the house. I want this to be the end of the world. Don't you feel that this is the real beauty of all this Eastern art? That it is colored like the edges of things, like the little clouds of morning and the islands of the blessed. Do you know, and he lowered his voice yet more, it has the power over me of making me feel as if I were myself, absent and distant, some oriental traveler who was lost and for whom men were looking. When I see that greenish lemon-yellow enamel there let into the white, I feel that I am standing thousands of leagues from where I stand. You are right, said Joan, looking at him with some wonder. I have felt like that myself. This art, went on Ivywood as in a dream, does indeed take the wings of the morning and abide in the uttermost parts of the sea. They say it contains no form of life. But surely we can read its alphabet as easily as the red hieroglyphics of sunrise and sunset, which are on the fringes of the robe of God. I never heard you talk like that before, said the lady, and again stroked the vivid violet feathers of the small eastern bird. Mr. Quoodle could stand it no longer. He had evidently formed a very low opinion of the torrent chamber and of oriental art generally, but seeing Joan's attention once more transferred to his rival, he trotted out into the longer room, and finding the gap in the woodwork which was soon to be boarded up, but which still opened on to an old dark staircase, he went galumphing down the stairs. Lord Ivywood gently placed the bird on the girl's own finger, and went to one of the open windows, leaning out a little. Look here, he said. Doesn't this express what we both feel? Isn't this the sort of fairy-tale house that ought to hang on the last wall of the world? And he motioned her to the window sill, just outside which hung the bird's empty cage, beautifully wrought in brass or some of the yellow metals. Why, that is the best of all, cried Lady Joan. It makes one feel as if it really were the Arabian Nights, as if this were a tower of the gigantic genie with turrets up to the moon, and this were an enchanted prince, caged in a golden palace suspended by the evening star. Something stirred in her dim but teeming subconscious, something like a chill or change like that by which we half know that weather has altered or Distant and unnoticed music suddenly ceased. Where is the dog? she asked suddenly. Ivywood turned with a mild gray eye. Was there a dog here? he asked. Yes, said Lady Joan Brett, 
and gave him back the bird, which he restored carefully to its cage. The dog, after whom she inquired, had in truth trundled down a dark, winding staircase and turned into the daylight into a part of the garden he had never seen before, nor indeed had anybody else for some time past. It was altogether tangled and overgrown with weeds, and the only trace of human handiwork, the wreck of an old Gothic chapel, stood waist-high in numberless nettles and soiled with crawling fungoids. Most of these merely discolored the gray, crumbling stone with shades of bronze or brown, but some of them, particularly on the side farthest from the house, were of orange or purple tints, almost bright enough for Lord Ivywood's oriental decoration. Some fanciful eyes that fell on the place afterward found something like an allegory in those graven and broken saints, or archangels, feeding such fiery and ephemeral parasites as those toadstools, like blood or gold. But Mr. Quoodle had never set himself up as an allegorist, and he merely trotted deeper and deeper into the gray-green English jungle. He grumbled very much at the thistles and nettles, almost as a city man will grumble at the jostling of a crowd. But he continued to press forward, with his nose near the ground, as if he had already smelt something that interested him. And indeed he had smelt something in which a dog, except on special occasions, is much more interested than he is in dogs. Breaking through a last barrier of high and hoary purple thistles, he came out on a semicircle of somewhat clearer ground, dotted with slender trees, and having by way of back scene the brown brick arch of an old tunnel. The tunnel was boarded up with a very irregular fence or mask, made of motley wooden laths, and looked somehow rather like a pantomime cottage. In front of this, a sturdy man in very shabby shooting clothes was standing attending to a battered old frying pan, which he held over a rather irregular flame, which, small as it was, smelt strongly of burnt rum. In the frying pan, and also on the top of a cask or barrel that served for a table hard by, were a number of the gray, brown, and even orange fungi which were plastered over the stone angels and dragons of the fallen chapel. Hello, old man, said the person in the shooting jacket with tranquility, and without looking up from his cooking. Come to pay us a visit. Come along, then. He flashed one glance at the dog and returned to the frying pan. If your tail were two inches shorter, you'd be worth a hundred pounds. Had any breakfasts? The dog trotted across to him and began nosing and sniffing around his dilapidated leather gaiters. The man did not interrupt his cookery, on which his eyes were fixed and both his hands were busy, but he crooked his knee and foot so as to caress the quadruped in a nerve under the angle of the jaw, the stimulation of which, as some men of science have held, is for a dog what a good cigar is for a man. At the same moment, a huge voice like an ogre's came from within the masked tunnel, calling out, 
and who are you talking to a very crooked kind of window in the upper part of the pantomime cottage burst open and an enormous head with erect startling and almost scarlet hair and blue eyes as big as a bullfrog's was thrust out above the scene hump cried the ogre me moral counsels have been thrown away in the last week i've sung you fourteen and a half songs of me own composition instead of which you go about stealing dogs you're following in the path of parson what's-his-name in every way i'm afraid no said the man with the frying-pan impartially parson white lady struck a very good path for doubling on pebblewick that i was glad to follow but i think he was quite silly to steal dogs he was young and brought up pious i know too much about dogs to steal one well asked the large red-haired man and how do you get a dog like that i let him steal me said the person stirring the pan and indeed the dog was sitting erect and even arrogant at his feet as if he was a watchdog at a high salary and had been there before the building of the tunnel End of chapter 10 Recording by Bill Mosley, Frellsburg, Texas, USA